Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. I have the pleasure of interviewing Eric Tonsmeyer, who is the author of The Carbon Farming Solution, among other great books on agroforestry and perennial crops. The first part of the interview is focused on understanding the carbon sequestration potential of agroforestry, focusing especially on silvopasture. I found this very helpful to recap how essential it is to increase the number of trees in our landscapes as we attempt to tackle climate change. Another great part of the conversation is his current work on alley cropping and outlining where it makes more sense, as well as what prevents its uptake. Hello, Eric. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. It's good to be here. Maybe to get started, you could just tell us how you first um, started getting interested in agroforestry and trees in general. Sure. I was um, uh, just out of high school in 1990, and I um, uh, came across some um, a conference talk on permaculture and read some of the very early books, you know, the first books on permaculture, which were really about um, what today we would call multi-strata agroforestry. Um, and, um, I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. And that's really what I've done ever since. Uh, how did you, uh, come to write your book on carbon and the role of, uh, farming and carbon sequestration? Sure. Well, I, um, I mean, I had been doing work with agroforestry and perennial crops for many, many years, but it was in maybe 2008. Eight, uh, that I read a book by Tim Flannery, who's an Australian scientist whose work I'll read anything he writes on sort of any subject. And um, he had a new book on climate change called Now or Never. And um, so that was sort of my realizing that this wasn't just a problem for the future, but it was very much a time of reckoning on that. Um, and, um, and there was a particular passage where he said, yes, trees can play a really important role, but there's only so much land available for trees because we have to keep land for farming. And I thought, well, there are kinds of farming that involve trees. And if so esteemed a scientist as Tim Flannery maybe doesn't know that yet, then then there maybe there's a role for me here to promote these um, uh, perennial agricultural systems and their potential role for climate change. So that's when I began work on what became the carbon farming, um, book, which was, uh, which came out nine years later. So it was, there was a long learning curve of coming to understand, um, uh, the science and the issues around climate change mitigation in general, and then learning the systems and the species doing sort of a global search through those um, uh, in a global inventory of, of species and practices. And after um, researching the topic for so many years, are you still convinced that necessarily um, 
storing carbon has to go through trees. Um, just to clarify my question, you know, uh, a lot of people are working also on other types of regenerative agriculture that don't include trees. Um, and I think uh, many people still think trees are one possibility, but not necessarily an obligation in, into regenerative processes. What's your view on that? Well, I, I don't think that they're the right fit for every farm in every case, but the numbers seem pretty clear that wherever they can be included, they greatly increase the amount of carbon, both in the soil and in the biomass of the trees. So in almost every case, we see that um, a good system, let's say with you know cover crops and crop rotation and compost application, is good but when you add trees it becomes better in terms of carbon it's better that doesn't mean it's necessarily more profitable it doesn't mean it's the right choice for that farm uh where water is limiting that could still it could be a bad idea there's an you know it's not um there isn't any one uniform way to do it but it's almost always better when you add more trees, like a lot better, three times better, five times better, 10 times better in terms of carbon. And that's still, uh, people read that, tell me they've read that book all the time and then don't think about the trees at all and only, only talk about soil. So I think the, the core concept of that book really is if you can add trees, you should still is something that very much needs to be advocated for. While the notion that soil can sequester carbon, which was sort of new at that time, is very widely accepted now that the importance of trees, I think, is still really not taken as, as seriously as it should be. And um, of course, it's difficult to go into too much detail um, in this short podcast. And I really recommend all of our listeners to go straight to your book because you know, there's a ton of re really, really useful information and it's really a fascinating read. But just maybe to give a, a, a short context, what makes trees so good at storing carbon? Why are they so important? Sure. Um, well, um, first, the the biomass of the trees itself, the wood of the trees, the branches and the trunk and the roots all hold carbon. If you dry them out, they're about um, uh, about 50% carbon on a dry weight basis, about half carbon. So first of all there's that um but also they do a very good job increasing soil organic matter which is uh, one of the fundamental components of carbon farming as well so um they just um uh they have deeper roots they have roots that are alive all winter long unlike in an annual system where there's periods where there's no living roots in the soil um uh, the roots die back, the hair, root hairs die back every year, and that contributes a lot of organic matter. The leaves drop to the soil and decompose, and that provides a lot of organic matter. So they, um, they just do a good job. And um, of course, there's, as you mentioned, two dimensions. Um, there's storing carbon in wood products, maybe, and through their biomass that can be used in construction, mm -hmm. etc. And there's uh, the fact that they help store carbon in the soils. Um, would you argue that it's more long-lived to use to uh, export that, like those tree trunks, and keep them in houses, for example, or, or construction? Because um, I mean, carbon stored in the soils can easily be reverted, right? That uh, one of the weaknesses of any kind of agricultural carbon sequestration is that that carbon can be lost if, uh, let's say, there's a fire 
the tree carbon may be lost or um, if the farmer returns to plowing the soil again, the soil carbon can be lost very quickly or if they're um, if the climate dries out, which we're seeing happening in many places in the world already that the land is becoming a net emitter of carbon because it's just getting so dry that it is losing the carbon that it has. So um, whereas carbon that's soiled, stored in, um, in a, a building or furniture or books or something like that is stored for the life of that product, the life that now books and houses and furniture can burn as well. And that is a concern with climate change, but um, that is a pretty good secure storage. And if, if, and only if that um, new trees are planted or if the old tree re-sprouts and regrows, then you start the cycle again of, um, of carbon sequestration. And actually that's one of the real advantages of trees in carbon farming systems is that uh, in an ordinary grazing system or an improved regenerative annual farming system, you get a few decades of carbon sequestration uh, and then it stops or it slows down to almost nothing. Um, and then you're back to where you began. You're, you can become a source of emissions again or whatever. Um, what's unique about agroforestry is you can plant trees uh, and then they can be harvested at some point, stored in some long-term way, like we were saying, timber or books or what have you, um, and then replanted or resprouted. And they begin the cycle of active carbon sequestration again. So instead of only lasting 30 or 50 years, you could maybe continue for centuries by operating in that way. So that's sort of a hack of saturation, which is really important, um, especially if you're trying to offset, let's say, the emissions of grazing, the methane and nitrous oxide emissions of grazing animals on a farm like that. Once your soil is full of carbon, you're out of luck unless you can reset the cycle with trees. So you you would disagree with, you know, we've heard some claims saying that, for example, uh, intensive rotational grazing alone or on a very large scale would be enough to sequester uh, enough carbon to reverse climate change. Uh, it seems that what you're saying is that through your research, you found that that wouldn't necessarily be the case. I would very much say that's not the case. Uh, first of all, because of the, the issue of... Um, uh, saturation that it only goes for so many years and then slows down but also just if you look at the sequestration rates of that are actually shown in science and apply them to the amount of grazing land that they could be applied to that's not enough to to do the job at all it's it's one powerful tool it's a very important very powerful tool but um at project drawdown for example we found that it wasn't that it was wasn't even our most powerful agricultural practice. It's only as part of a, a program that includes action across agriculture and the food system and also in transportation and electricity generation and building design and urban planning and everything else, reducing of consumption in the wealthy countries. Only with all those things together can we achieve mitigation. Um, so I think some of the grazing um, advocates in their enthusiasm have um, uh, over-promised what kind of impact is possible with that. And in fact, if you look at the numbers that have come out recently in studies funded by enthusiasts of that kind of grazing, mostly the sequestration rates have not been as high as they initially promised. Um, in fact, they've gone down the last... <laughs> 
couple of studies they've been going down. So um, I don't think it's uh, enough to to um, say there's no single practice that's going to do it. It takes lots of action everywhere. And I think ultimately we're not well served by that kind of overpromising. Which is an overpromising that happens as well in the world of agroforestry and on trees. And I think um, for now, I've uh, we often discuss this with Dimitri, but I think we've reached the conclusion of be- being, you know, very cautious with any silver bullets and very seductive, um, you know, unique solution. Because there's a part of us that really wants to believe in them, and it's probably linked to psychology of despair or something faced with um you know the situation we're in we we want to think about the the savior that you know changes it all but definitely i agree with what you're saying yeah one of the things we learned at project drawdown and i I went to work for drawdown just as i was finishing uh work on the draft of the carbon farming book is that um uh you can sort of make estimates of what the technical potential might be if you took this practice and did it to all of the world's grassland, but you don't get to have all of the world's grassland. (laughs) The way to do it sort of responsibly is to say, well, how much is there now? How much land is there in, in, in alley cropping or in managed grazing or whatever practice now? And how much could there be? How much potential land is there available for that? And what rate is that is it spreading at now, what's the sort of most ambitious rate that it might grow at? But you're never going to get 100% of the world's farmers to do anything because farmers are very independent-minded people. (laughs) So first, you'll never get 100% for that. And then some countries are in the middle of, you know, uh, wars and conflicts. Those are not places where it's going to be easy to get a practice to achieve 100% adoption, right? And so on. So, So we the difference between the technical potential and the achievable potential can be a very big difference. And really we should be more concerned with what what's achievable than what's theoretically possible. Um, uh, uh, although I do believe in, in thinking really big when it comes to climate change mitigation, we don't get there without am- extremely ambitious programs, but um, um, I don't see uh, us achieving the full technical potential and 100% adoption of all these practices. And often they want each other's land too. This person wants grassland for grazing. This person wants it for silvopasture. This person wants it for afforestation. Well, there's only so much land. <laughs> we can't, in some cases, we can use it for multiple things, um, but uh, but but we can't always. So there's a lot of... Um, 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 practices maybe trying to make themselves uh, give themselves all of the available land when really they may need to share that with other practices and approaches. Some land needs to be reforested, um, uh, for example. So um, uh, those are some of the kind of complexities when you get to looking at it at the global level, which we did with Rodham, which was really new and really fascinating for me to learn about. That was really fun. And interestingly, because we talked about trees and we also talked about grazing, well, um, the one one of the surprisingly high uh, impact solutions that you put forward was silver pasture, so the mix of those two elements. Um, could you tell us a bit more about you know that that uh, agroforestry system and how come it scored up so high on the in the drawdown project? Yeah, that's we we get that question a lot because to many people it's such a new practice it is pretty widely practiced around the world but not um 
in some places really barely at all. So like here in the U.S., it's barely practiced at all. Um, there's a couple of reasons. One is that it's already very widespread um, on an estimated 15% of the world's grazing land. So it starts with a good, um, um, uh, it has a head start, you might say. Um, and then it has a, uh, there's quite a bit of grassland that is suitable for silvopasture. So the sort of maximum potential you could do it on is pretty high. Not all grassland. We figured that you could, um, that uh, all humid grassland would serve for silvopasture and that some semi-arid grassland. Um, uh, I've heard people say, like Darren Dougherty says, he can establish trees down to about 450 millimeters of rainfall a year. But really, there's a point where it's kind of too dry for silvopasture or where it becomes much more difficult to establish trees. So sort of taking only the grassland that we think gets enough rainfall to establish trees, it still gives you an awful lot of an awful lot of of, of potential grassland. I think it was over 700 million hectares. I mean, really a lot, um, uh, which is a small percentage of global grassland, but still very high. And then you have a very high carbon sequestration rate. The annual rate of carbon sequestered per year is very high. So when you take a lot of land plus a very high carbon sequestration rate, you you do okay. And actually the, the growth rate, the adoption rate we modeled for silvopasture was very modest because we, we didn't have any examples of it spreading really rapidly to, to base that assumption on. Um, so it didn't nearly achieve its potential in the drawdown, its technical potential in the drawdown model. Um, but uh, it just, it does a really great job sequestering carbon. It's very, very powerful. And, um, and we do see certain places where, uh, particularly Colombia and Central America, where it's, and parts of Mexico, where it's taking off very, very rapidly. Um, and um, I think that's uh, something I'm paying close attention to. I was just at the Latin American Congress of Silvopasture last week, uh, virtually, and um, there's a lot of excitement. The Colombian national government is is including silvopasture as one of the like three core pillars of their national uh, mitigation efforts. So um, I do think there is some. Um, we we may be seeing a really big transformation of land in Colombia um, uh, into silvopasture because they've done so much of the the groundwork to make that possible already. They're maybe ready with, excuse me, with some extra um, money and resources behind them to really take off and transform the landscape there, which would be fantastic. I guess we'll have to start a Spanish podcast then to follow uh, follow all of that uh, action over there. But I was going to ask, why does silvopasture then perform uh, so much better than other agroforestry systems? Mm, sure. Well, okay. Um it has to do with the com with the combination of the available land, the growth rate, and the sequestration rate. So alley cropping, I think we actually showed growing faster. Well, we called it um, tree intercropping because it includes alley cropping and various other kinds of silvoarable systems. Um, that's growing very rapidly. So we have a fast rate of growth, but a lower carbon sequestration rate because you're typically plowing between the trees. You're burning up a lot of the carbon and it goes back into the atmosphere again. 
So the rate is lower, even though the growth rate is faster. Um, and with multi-strata agroforestry has even a higher carbon sequestration rate than silvopasture. But um, we chose to model it that it was restricted to the humid tropics, which mostly to all practical intents and purposes, it is um, on a commercial level like shade coffee and shade cacao and things like that. Really, we don't have that in the dry places or cold places yet commercially. Um, and also the amount of the area in multi-strata agroforestry hasn't really changed in the last century in any discernible way that scientists have been able to notice. So it's not, whereas like urban food forests and backyard food forests have taken off really well. There's not a million hectares of that even in the whole world yet, right? So it's still very micro scale. Um, so we, we, so there was a practice where we only had a very small gain in the area, but because it has such a high sequestration rate, it still has a big impact compared to, let's say, um, nutrient management, you know, applying fertilizer more thoughtfully, um, the per hectare impact is very, very slim, but because it can be, it's spreading so rapidly and it can be done on almost all of the world's cropland, um, you have about the same impact as uh, multi-strata agroforestry, even though one is growing really fast and one is growing really slowly. So it's this kind of um, mix back. And also, uh, all of the agroforestry systems tend to be much more expensive to install, to establish, and to take more years to pay back the farmer. So there is this, um, a, there are some economic barriers without really friendly policies. It's harder to establish those practices than say cover cropping or managed grazing or, or nutrient management or low methane rice or some of these other um agricultural practices. So then you had to make a bit of a hypothesis on silver pasture and kind of assessing, you know, how easy is it for this to be taken up by farmers? Because one thing is to say, potentially, you know, this many uh, hectares are available in terms of climate and conditions, as you mentioned about rainfall. But then it's another thing of saying socially and economically, how realistic is it for farmers to take it Quickly, so that's if I understand properly, that's also part of the hypothesis you you have behind different models. That is something that we took into account, and um, uh, and uh, it's hard to do that. <laughs> I think uh, one of Drawdown's longer term goals is to is to do more regional analyses and national level analyses, and at that. Once you drill down to a more specific region, like if you looked at even just the EU level, for example, it would be much easier to do that than looking at the whole planet where circumstances are very different from different countries. Um, and even the kind of silvopasture is different. Like what we see in um, a lot of Eastern Africa is that um, um, the land is managed by pastoralists who don't own the land, but bring their traveling herds through. And there it's not so much a matter of planting trees as managing the grazing in such a way that um, the trees that naturally emerge are allowed to do so and not browse down by livestock. So that's a 
a different, it's sort of a, a passive silvopasture where you just let it happen. You stop preventing it from happening, um, uh, which is really different from the sort of European mode where you go out and you plant the trees in a row and all of that. Um, so it's much more affordable to establish, costs nothing to establish, except a little bit of extra work. Um, uh, but it would take really different policies to encourage those two different kinds of silvopasture. And there might be, um, uh, it might be much easier to market um, European silvopasture as a climate-friendly meat and milk and wool, as opposed to, you know, um, the livestock being raised by Maasai pastoralists who do not have access to those kinds of premium climate-friendly markets, things like that. So, um, so it's hard to figure that out at a global level, I guess. It makes more sense to, to break it down region by region and think about what, um, uh, what's going to work. But we did take that into account, and that's why we don't have all of the world's land in silvopasture or all of the world's grazing land in managed grazing because... While that would be lovely, uh, we don't see that um, uh, uh, we don't see any historical evidence that that's possible. Well, at least from our uh, regional perspective, um, we chatted to Fabien um, from the French Agroforestry Association a few months back, and we asked them what, which agroforestry systems did have most uh, demand and traction on, and silvopasture was one of them. And definitely, it it feels that one of the let's say, uh, uh, strong points of silver pasture is that a lot of people with animals are already feeling very intense uh, heat stress in summers uh, and just yeah. looking for shelter for their animals, if only that, you know, which is already, uh, you know, a, a simpler objective to reach than, for example, fodder or uh, really providing all of an animal's forage from silver pasture. That's, I think, still quite experimental and has some practical limitations, but... Uh, seeing people planting hedges and trees to just give some shade to the animals is definitely something we see all around us, uh, at least in France, um, for sure. That's that's really the global trend. Yeah, is is shade for livestock is increasingly important and just going to get. And I would add, shade for farm workers is also very important. Um, uh, uh, the number of days that are above the temperature at which. Um, humans and livestock begin to take damage from heat is 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 on the rise almost everywhere in the world and is projected to uh, be catastrophically bad. So shade is, is really important for that, for sure, yeah. Just to wrap up uh, the topic on silver pasture, I just want to make sure we understand really the mechanisms of, of uh, carbon sequestration. You know, we said that after a while, uh, grassland stops storing carbon because it's saturated to its full potential. Um, how does a tree help taking that limit further? Sure. Uh, the first thing is it does is it adds carbon above ground, often quite a lot of carbon above ground. Um, so that's a huge, it, it, it takes the um, carbon that's being sequestered into another dimension, you know, um, up into the air. Um, but also it increases both the, the annual rate of carbon sequestration in the soil, um, but also the total amount that can be stored. So whereas what you mostly see with managed grazing systems 
is a gain of maybe 30 to 50 tons of carbon per hectare in the soil. With silvopasture, that can be as high as 250 just in the soil. So you're expanding the soil storage capacity. Um, uh, you're expanding its potential while also increasing above ground biomass from functionally zero, maybe four to 12 tons per hectare in, in the grass itself. But you're taking that quite a bit higher, 30, 40, 50, sometimes 100 tons per hectare in, in, in that above ground biomass. So um, it really, uh, uh, and Ratan Lal writes about this, that, um, you know, we sort of think that you can hit a certain point and then you're full in terms of saturation. But if you add another practice, you can increase it again. And then another practice and another practice, how many layers can we add? While planting trees might not be the first practice that a farmer does, they might start by optimizing their stocking rate of livestock and so on, um, um, seeding uh, legume forages or something, for example. Um, from from the numbers that I have seen, uh, uh, nothing is as powerful as trees in a pasture. And have have researchers been able to to understand uh, how it increases that uh, potential? Is it through bringing carbon deeper into the soil profile or is it maybe another type of, of carbon? I would say I know more about that in the alley cropping area than in silvopasture. Um, but a lot of it is just because of the increased inputs of, uh, of biomass between the dropping of leaves and the shedding of root hairs. Um, uh, it's kind of like dumping a bunch of compost on the, on the field every year, um, quite a lot. Um, so a lot of it has to do with that. And often the growing season of the trees and the grasses are not the same. So you have a longer overall season of photosynthesis than you might like, let's say in the summer when it gets dry and the grass is going dormant, if you have cool season grasses, the trees are continuing to photosynthesize during that period. And at the same time, those cool season grasses are going to photosynthesize in the winter when the trees are dormant and have lost their leaves. So um, there's some complementarity that trees and grass are doing different things at different times. And they, if it's well-designed and you have the right density of trees that aren't shading out all the grass and so on, um, then, then you can get sometimes you can do better than either trees alone or pasture alone would get. And that's really what we're aiming for with, with agroforestry is to do better than either trees or, or grass or crops alone. Great. But there isn't a special, there isn't a different kind of carbon sequestration or a different pathway or mechanism that I, that I know of. It's just the same thing, but, but uh, more, more powerful. And again, not in every situation, if it's, not in really dry places and not under certain other circumstances, but overall it seems much more powerful. I guess what's so complicated is within, within just silver pasture, you know, uh, because we're taking this example, there might be very different uh, practices. You might have silver pasture where you're actually growing timber and exporting that wood and uh, using it for construction or furniture, as we mm -hmm. mentioned before, or you might just have some, you know, uh, short cycle shrubs or trees that are just have a role of 
of providing shade and are cycled back pretty quickly into the soil um, mm -hmm. with obviously like a very different potential in time to sequester carbon. So I imagine that was quite a headache and um, that when, when governments, like you were mentioning South American governments, basing a mitigation policy on, on such practices, um, yeah, it's quite uncertain and broad in a way, isn't it? It's nice in, the, in that case, let's say you're looking at Colombia because you can say, well, the main practices are, you know, this and this and that, and the sequestration rate for those is this, and we think they can grow that much. Um, uh, they have less variables to work with than a global study. And it's not only the sort of the, the patterning and the management of the trees, the layout and the density and the management, but also the species of trees. Some trees sequester more carbon than others, and some will go um, fast growing trees like poplars will sequester more carbon in the first few decades. But in the long run, oaks, slower growing trees with denser wood will sequester more carbon. So um, it sort of depends what kind of time scale you want to measure it on. And a, a lot of it we don't really fully know yet, I think. Um, um, yeah, if you're cutting the trees very short, like if you're pollarding to feed the foliage to livestock, then there's carbon in that trunk and in the roots, but you don't have the whole crown of the tree. So there's probably less carbon in that system than in one that has full-size trees. Um, there are um, many, many variables to to think about. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, yeah, it's anyway, thank you for that work because it's very uh, useful to have a bit this attempt at least to have a big picture view of, of these very complex questions. And this brings me to another theme that's very present in your book, um, which is basically as a, as a solution you put forward is shifting towards a more, uh, towards perennial cultures uh, because of their um, mm. potential for carbon sequestration. And my first question as a, as a Frenchman that absolutely loves bread made with wheat um yes. you know how how do you change people's diets and and their culture um because mm. i can just imagine uh the face of my neighbors as i try and offer them a loaf of hundred uh, percent chestnut flour uh, bread and yeah. you know that that would be a big step i um yes uh uh um and one of the folks in 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 permaculture who advocates around agroforestry and perennial crops a lot is a guy named jeff lawton who um said to me once that uh the hardest thing to get anyone to do that that as soon as someone is about two years old they will never want to change what they eat for their basic staple food again if it's rice if it's potatoes if it's bread it's locked in by the time people are two years old. And I, I love bread as well. So um, uh, I couldn't, it would be hard for me to switch to bananas or plantains or breadfruit or, or, or whatever. Um, I think the first thing to do is to change what we feed to livestock because they, a pig doesn't care nearly as much as a person about what kind of carbohydrates it's eating. They're very happy to eat those chestnuts or acorns or whatever it might be. Um, and given that about a third of the crops that we grow in the world are to feed livestock, that's a big potential transformation right there. They don't care. So, or they don't have the option of caring anyway. So I, that, that's a, third of our cropland right there 
that could be perennialized if everything else was working well, if the yields were appropriate and so on. Um, and also, um, uh, um, somewhere around nine or 10% of all of our crops in the world are grown for feedstock for industry, raw materials for industry, um, uh, uh, for bioplastic, for the chemicals industry, things like that. And again, flavor is not as important to a, you know, bioprocessing tank. Uh, as it is to to a person. So I think there's potential to perennialize that as well with, again, assuming you have the same yields and everything else works as well. Um, um, a fermenting vat doesn't care what kind of starch goes into it to a certain degree. Um, so that's, you know, almost half of farmland is taken care of that way. Um, uh, and and one important thing is that uh, we are work people are working on perennializing grains and um, I think that will offer um, many of the of the staples we're accustomed to like um, rice there's some perennial rice yielding very very well in its fifth year now um, uh, on a number of different farms around China and Southeast Asia it's it's grown like rice it's harvested like rice it's processed like processed like rice it's eaten like rice it tastes like rice <laughs> it is rice so um that's very easy as well so there are some direct now we'll never have a perennial potato or carrot you can't really perennialize root production um, and I don't think we need to make all of agriculture perennial we just need to make it as perennial as we can so on flat, prime, fertile soil, we can grow annuals in good ways, and that's great. Um, but that's, what is it, maybe only a third or a quarter of the world's farmland is actually really very good farmland anyway. A lot of it is highly erodible or is on a slope or for some other reason not ideal. And those are the places to me where we at least want to begin with perennializing, maybe by mixing the annual crops like wheat that we love with trees. So we have an annual system that has a tree component. Um, but those are also good places to think about as perennial grains come in um, or to work on chestnuts. And I've had a wonderful chestnut polenta. Um, and I think in, in the context of an economic system that actually values the the ecosystem services and the climate um, um, benefits and drawbacks of agriculture, it might start to make a lot more sense to do a lot more things with chestnuts than we do now, um, to use one example. So, um, uh, but I, I don't see um, the French abandoning bread for chestnuts entirely. I don't think that would be fair. <laughs> <laughs> to do. And I don't think we should ask China to stop eating rice and so on, right? But uh, how much can we perennialize is really the question. How far can we go? And the answer is much farther than we are now. Much, much, much farther, <laughs> even with what we know how to do now. And then there are things that will be coming 10 or 15 years from now, better perennial grains and so on, that will really... Um, uh, enable another round of, of further perennialization that um, is still um, uh, 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 that isn't yet possible. I guess part of the reason why this hasn't happened until now is that it still requires to change uh, the 
a lot of the farming economy and the way people relate to their food and what they're willing to pay. If I take the example of livestock, for example, uh, we do have uh, pigs, you know, eating acorns or, um, or or chestnuts, but they are like a niche product, high quality, and people mm -hmm. are willing to pay a lot of money for that because, of course, in terms of uh, the production models, um, you can't produce at the same price uh, the same amount of meat uh, feeding, you know, um, ready-made formula for pigs mm -hmm. in an industrial way or having a, a more perennially based system. So, you know, that's that's the other issue is uh, we still go back to culture and, and these huge uh, social uh, locks that it, it seems... Um, the, the, the first step in some ways there, or, or a wonderful step if we can make it happen, is to to get rid of the subsidies that are making that kind of unsustainable agriculture possible. And I, I read a study a year or two ago that globally, it's about $700 billion uh, US dollars per year are going into subsidizing agriculture, whether it's the cap or other kinds of efforts like that. Um, and about 1% of those were sustainable, climate-friendly practices. <laughs> so we're paying for the wrong kinds of agriculture already, uh, which makes it very hard to compete with. So if we could remove some of those uh, subsidies for the kinds of agriculture that are not uh, climate-friendly, um, um, uh, that makes a bit more of what we would call here a level playing field, a more fair competition between regenerative practices. Then if we could take some of that money that is freed up and actually use it to encourage the adoption of these practices to build markets, to build the supply chain infrastructure we need to make chestnuts reach their full potential, let's say, um, uh, um, to pay farmers to plant trees on their farms to develop the kinds of education and outreach programs that are necessary to help farmers adopt those practices. Well, which trees, which varieties of those trees, what distance, what planting technique, uh, um, um, developing the mechanization systems that can make those uh, more economically efficient to, to, to use. Um, the, it's not that there isn't money to do those things, it's that we're spending it on um, you know, feedlots and, and things like that on, on all kind of maybe the wrong kinds of agriculture, which one can argue those are climate friendly because they intensify production and grow more land on the same, let's say, hectare of land, you know, um, uh, which theoretically means less deforestation, perhaps for agriculture. But that argument ignores that silvopasture and alley cropping also intensify production quite a bit. Um, so you can have, you can increase productivity without increasing, uh, you know, pollution and emissions and, and, the, and, uh, um, uh, uh, having animal welfare issues and all of that. It's not really that you have to choose industrial agriculture or a low yielding regenerative agriculture. There's very much high yielding regenerative agriculture and, um, um, uh, uh, that's a would be a very wise place for for money to go in terms of those those subsidies and and research and development and outreach money and so on. Hmm. But beyond beyond the fact that um, perennial crops have to compete with a highly subsidized 
system, it still seems, at least for the moment with the methods we have, it still has a handicap in terms of uh, the labor it requires and the fact that it's sometimes harder to mechanize. And in a place like France or Europe or I guess even the US where labor is so expensive, um, at the moment that might be a, a big, um, yeah, a big limitation. It's a big hurdle and it's interesting in the tropics, the opposite is true, that it's actually more it's more labor efficient to grow perennial staples than to grow annual staples because where labor is done by hand or with draft animals, um, perennials are less work. Uh, but where we have these huge uh, combines and other pieces of equipment, um, uh, it's much more efficient to grow annual crops than perennial crops at present. I, I did a little work on that in the book where I compared um, the hours per ton of food um, from some annual crops and some perennial crops in California. And all of the annual crops um, were more efficient than any of the perennial crops. And the most efficient annual crop was a hundred times had a hundred times less hours per ton of um, product than the least efficient perennial crop. So some of them in the middle were pretty close. Cow peas and uh, walnuts maybe or almonds were pretty close. But overall, it's clear that uh, that with um, that there's a need for um, more efficient uh, uh, harvest and mechanization. Um, uh, and yet with the perennial grains, again, when, when they're really fully ready and they're not really fully ready yet, we do have a few early ones out of the gate, which is exciting. Um, uh, those will um, will use all of the equipment we already use. So they'll use a regular combine and everything else, um, which makes them um, very exciting. The drawback is that they don't really exist yet in any serious way. We do have Kernza, which has been released, which yields about as well as quinoa, um, um, somewhere around a ton or a ton and a half per hectare. So not really competitive with um, uh, wheat or, or, or corn or something, but it is um, the value is higher. The value per ton is higher. So it can be economically viable for farmers to do that now. Um, and I'm sure that the people who bred it um, ultimately would like it to yield as well as wheat does. But we're not, uh, we're not there yet. These things take time. Plant breeding is slow and plant breeding with perennials is slow. And if you were to look at the, the research budget, let's say the global research budget for wheat versus Kernza, it must be, you know, 10,000 times more euros being spent on wheat than on perennial grade. So, uh, so again, a, a reallocation of priorities might be desirable there. A reallocation of research money could really help to move the perennial grain um, effort forward. And also, I think there's some new ways to think about perennial crops. What I like about the Badger Set um, uh, uh, research project that I, I write about in the book a little bit is they're rethinking tree crops from, you know, uh, a tree where you come out with a tree shaker and shake down the nuts. And then you come with another machine and make a windrow and another one and pick that up. Um, they're planting the trees very close in double rows, like like 
half a meter or a meter apart. Um, uh, and then they coppice them every five to 10 years and come with a, um, it's the kind of mechanical harvester we use for blueberries here. I think it might be like what you would use for black currants that rides over the whole hedgerow and harvests all of the um, nuts that way. So instead of growing hazelnuts, let's say as a tree where you shake it and pick them up off the ground, you grow them as a hedge and you just ride over the whole hedge with one machine and harvest all the nuts in one pass which makes for a much um, um, uh, uh, many less hours per ton of nut that is harvested. And we do see that system a little bit being used in um, some Mediterranean olive production um, uh, in uh, Greece, I think, and also with um, sea buckthorn in parts of Europe. So that, that sort of approach to a really different way of thinking about harvesting tree crops. And both olives and sea buckthorn are perennial staple crops. They're oil crops. So um, I, I think that's another interesting way to go is to think really differently about how we grow these plants um, and how we would approach harvesting them. There's also issues around harvesting in polyculture systems, which sound like they're not impossible to resolve. It's just no one's really thought about that so much before. So um, none of those are likely to be resolved right away. I think we sort of have to start with growing, let's say, chestnuts or hazelnuts as more specialty products right now and gradually figure out how to transition them to occupying more and more of the staple crop market, which unfortunately means that the price will go down uh, as well. So um, uh, I don't have all of that um, figured out just yet. Yes, but listening to you and uh, you know taking the example of mechanization, it seems that it all comes down to political will, which kind of says a lot and says nothing because you know you can wait. It seems like you can wait a long time for for that to actually be a force for change. But you know we at the moment people are inventing much crazier technologies. Uh, to try and solve climate change with very complex capture, carbon capture um, units, etc. I mean, if there mm. was money and a political will to develop and efficiently mechanize perennial crops, I'm pretty sure that would be within the realm of uh, human uh, civilization. You know what I mean? I mean, if you put yeah. things back into proportion, and I think that applies to a lot of the things you've been saying uh, throughout this, um, you know, first uh, 50 minutes of interview, um, you know, a lot of things are technically feasible. Now it's about building the economic and social structures, um, you know, enabling that on a large scale. And uh, yeah. yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I really want us to move on to kind of the the last uh, theme I have uh, in, 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 in stock, which is um, alley cropping, because uh, you told me and, and mentioned that you had been working more recently on specifically alley cropping, and I'd love to hear a bit more about that research. Sure, I um, I um, uh, am currently uh, um, uh, under contract with a, an NGO here in the U.S. called Interlace Commons. Uh, so I'm working with their director Megan Giraud, um 
on a, a manual on alley cropping for the United States, which we feel will have a lot of relevance anywhere in the cold climates of the world in Europe and Argentina and Canada and Eastern Asia and so on. Um, and I, I will say that very much uh, one of our big influences is certainly the work that's being done in France. And we've been reading, uh, reading that work very closely um, we're certainly looking at what people are doing in the United States and in Canada, and we're looking at, um, uh, there was some really great work done in China in the 1970s and 1980s. There's some interesting things happening in North Korea. Um, but I, I think we could all agree that France is sort of carrying the banner for alley cropping and mechanized alley cropping in cold climates. You all are really uh, absolutely um, uh, the lead on that and we're we're very very happy to be following in that lead as as best we can um particularly when it comes to some of the calculations around um uh predicting how much shade is going to come at what time and how that relates to the spacing and density of trees um uh and one of the things that i really like that's come out of the french work is the emphasis on um, winter grains, winter cereals with deciduous trees, where you have two different seasons in which these different plants are using the sunlight. So they're not competing for light because they're at different seasons, which is the same thing we see uh, in, in the Sahel region of Africa. There's a practice called um, evergreen agriculture where they use this... Um, a tree, Phyderbia albida. It's a nitrogen-fixing tree. It's a sort of like an acacia. Um, and that tree puts on leaves in the dry season, but drops its leaves for the wet season. So you're growing crops under trees, but the trees have no leaves on them. And then in the winter, the trees have leaves and there's no crops underneath. So that's it's very much the same thing that we see in France. Actually, it's much more widespread in Africa than alley cropping is in France. But that kind of um, looking at the phenology, the timing seems to be one of the keys worldwide to making polycultures work and to making agroforestry work. So I really like that. And we do have some Mediterranean climates here in the U.S. Parts of the Western United States are Mediterranean. Quite a bit of our farmland there in the West is Mediterranean climate. Um, so that might be more directly used. The rest of us have to just sort of adopt the concept in some way. We do have winter crops here as well, but um, in, the, in the central and eastern part of the country. But because we have rainfall all through the year, um, uh, it's not quite as good a way I know in the French systems, the the winter cereals uh, sort of train the trees to grow their roots more deeply because of competition for water. And here we have rain all year round. So that's not going to be quite as much of a, of a benefit um, to us. Yes. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, I could say more. Or are there particular things you're curious about about that uh, manual? Well... Uh, I definitely want to go a bit more into some detail, but I think I'll be a bit uh, provoking and and ask if you think that alley cropping um, does it really have uh, a key role to play in uh, temperate climate agriculture, uh, both on climatic and also on economic realities. Uh, I'll just elaborate a bit on that, but you know, 
throughout the talk, uh, so many times we come back to the fact that uh, agroforestry performs better in the tropics. It's also more linked to traditional practices. You know, uh, alley, alley cropping uh, is quite a recent practice here in Europe uh, and, and has come a lot, I think, from trying to adapt more tropical systems to um, temperate climates. Um, so that does, you know, ask the question whether you think we can still make it work or are we trying to go and, and build something that's not really adapted? Mm. Well, that's a great question. Um, I will say that uh, in some ways it is a really new system. And in some ways, uh, you know, if you think about bocage and other kinds of very traditional systems in Europe, they go back to the origins of agriculture there. So the um, uh, some of the German fruit tree intercropping systems and some of the more Mediterranean um, fruit and nut and, and vegetable and grain intercropping systems do go back quite a long way, but that has sort of mostly been really removed from the landscape for quite some time now. Uh, here in the U.S., uh, in the eastern part where I live, um, the indigenous people here, the practice was uh, very much to mix trees with corn mulberry trees and walnut trees and um, persimmon trees and all manner of things, plums native plums uh, and grapes were all intercropped with annual crops here. And that's a very cold part of the part of the world, much colder than anywhere in France where I live. Um, so uh, I think it's, uh, it's not that there was never any here, but it was never perhaps the dominant force in quite such a way. Yes. Um, um, well, I guess the question is this, how much do we want a world that limits warming to 1.5 degrees? Uh, I don't think we, I, I think um, if you could do a practice like alley cropping that sequestered three to five times more carbon per hectare than the best annual cropping systems, wouldn't you want to do that? <laughs> I think that's really the, how much mitigation do you want? And also in terms of adaptation, Alley cropping is looking more and more like a good idea because as, um, first of all, for some shade, you know, but um, as rainfall gets more intense and we do see rainfall intensity going up in most of the world's cropland, uh, that makes erosion much more powerful. Water erosion gets much more powerful and the practices that maybe have been good enough for erosion control will no longer be sufficient. Um, and rows of trees with grass underneath uh, on or near the contour of a field are a very, very powerful erosion control practice. Um, so I think we're going to see more need for it as climate change gets worse. And yet we also need it to keep climate change from, from getting worse. So I think um, with, but a bunch of things need to be in place to make it work. There do need to be markets for those products or there need to be, and or there need to be subsidies for farmers to plant those trees or financing like low interest loans for them to wait until they actually get money from those crops and all of that has to be in place. The biggest barrier I see in the cold climate parts of the world in the global north, let's say, uh, is the use of herbicide. It's so widely used um, 
uh, um, with GMO crops uh, in many parts of the world, and not so much in the EU, I think, right? Because you've been able to hold those off a little bit better. Um, that you can't establish trees in those fields because uh, in the US and Canada and Argentina, they actually spray herbicide from airplanes multiple times a year. So the buffer uh, is uh, like 200 to 600 meters if you want to have a row of trees. (laughs) That's just not possible. So the the spread of that system, which does sequester a little carbon, where you reduce tillage and use cover crops and spray herbicide a lot, whether it's from airplanes or big sprayers on tractors, basically makes alley cropping impossible. Uh, And that's most farms in the U.S. and Canada and Argentina today and in southern Brazil, the sort of temperate, uh, the southern cone, they call it, in South America. Um, uh, And there's quite a bit of that in, you know, temperate India and China as well. In certain parts of the EU, people are certainly spraying that stuff, I think. So um, I see, in a way, that's the biggest barrier to the wide-scale adoption of alley cropping is you can't establish trees in fields with herbicide, with that that much herbicide of those kinds, those broad-spectrum herbicides sprayed at that intensity and frequency. So I think that's the, um, at least outside of the EU, I think that's the biggest strategic barrier is they have to choose that or this. You can't do both of those practices. Um, but the, there might be that. a window of opportunity because, I mean, some people do use uh, herbicides to suppress weeds around trees. So it must be a question of dosage and, and maybe some kind of compromise can be found, um, you know, that works. But, um, you know, just uh, I think some interesting elements to this uh, alley cropping conversation is also the legitimate questions of like, do we really need to put trees in the part, you know, in the plot, or could we not leave them around? And, you know, I I always refer back to this conversation and this interview that Dimitri did with uh, Rowan Reed um, a few months back, and he had a really interesting perspective because he was actually quite against the idea of alley cropping, saying, you know, you back in the EU have a very subsidized agriculture. Uh, Back in Australia, farmers need to be much more responsive to the kind of commodity crop um, you know, to the markets and be able to be very flexible in the kind of crops they're going to grow and uh, keep their hands very free. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, one thing that's clear from books like uh, Christian Duprat and Fabien Liagre's book on agroforestry, which I think you were alluding to earlier on, um, is that it makes it very clear that you, you can't just put any tree with any crop. Uh, it's actually a very complex game of interactions with some... Uh, some facilitation um, mechanisms and some of competition. And, you know, it's, it's something that's highly technical and that by no means is obvious. So I think uh, in certain cases, it, it, one could make the, the, the case of saying, well, trees are amazing, but, you know, maybe let's uh, subdivide some plots and maybe let's have some hedges, but maybe it's too risky to have uh, these lines with a defined interline, which locks me into these spring um, you know, spring productions because I have to do that before uh, the competition of water is too high, etc., etc. But I'm, I'm a bit spoiling the work here because we should have Christian Duprat on the podcast in not too long. So, you know, mm-hmm. sorry for this monologue, but I think it's it's an interesting point. 
Um, well, I don't think it's the right thing everywhere and that everyone should always do it at all. And I, and I certainly think um, we can't blame farmers for needing to stay flexible in the face of what the market does. Um, absolutely. Uh, uh, I do think we could make it a more friendly environment for them to make those decisions. But I, I think also there's sort of like a, a set of stages of perennializing a, a crop farm. Um, or as, as making it more regenerative, the first might be cover crops um, and anything to improve soil organic matter and probably nutrient management goes in that first phase as well. Um, then we might look at, at uh, the border, the edges of the fields and getting some hedgerows in or some plantings along water bodies, along streams and, excuse me, drainages and things like that. So that's a kind of, and then maybe some strips of perennial grasses in the field as well, along contour for erosion control and filtering out uh, um, excess nutrients and things like that. Those are all ways to perennialize a field that don't, um, that preserve the flexibility of that farmer to grow what they need when they need. And those are all very good things and they have modest carbon benefits. Um and I think particularly for, for as I said before, flat, fertile land, that's a great way to go. But on land that is has a slope or is easy to erode, I think those are places where strategically we might think more about prioritizing alley cropping. Um, and one of the pieces of work we did on this book was looking at how far apart rows should be where people are farming on slopes, which I don't see a lot of in France. I mostly see people farming on beautiful flatland, but in a lot of the world, people are farming on slopes. Um, how far apart should uh, should those um, rows of trees be in order to prevent erosion? And at what point do they need to be so close together for erosion control that you can't really alley crop anymore? Uh, or you should switch to a shrub crop instead of a tree crop in order to make that work. And the answer really depends on soil um, types. Some uh, We spent uncounted hours doing interviews about this and reading about this with different um, soil uh, experts. Um, it depends on, this, on, the, on the soil type a lot, the erodibility of a soil type, but... Um, there are many cases where it's possible to have um, a 45 meter spacing between uh, rows of trees um, on a slope. And that's certainly plenty of space to grow uh, very fine crops in between, companion crops in between those rows of trees. But as the slope gets steeper, those rows have to get closer together. And in more erodible soils, they need to be very close. So it depends on um, uh, on those things quite a bit. Um, um, but we've, we've actually gotten some answers on that and been able to put some calculations in that people can do based on, um, um, some kinds of information that are pretty easy to get about your, um, uh, about the erodibility of your, of your soils. So um, that's exciting. That's really exciting. That's sort of a, I feel like a little bit of a new contribution we've been able to make for this book is to get to the bottom of those questions. And um, again, I, I haven't seen that kind of practice coming out of France very much because 
you do have a lot of flat, beautiful farmland, and it looks like most agro, most alley cropping there is happening in relatively flat land. But um, a lot of the farmland in the United States is is pretty steep, five percent, eight percent, twelve percent slopes, um, and uh, those are places where erosion is happening, and uh, and where it will get worse with climate change. So. Um, that's uh, to me is a real kind of priority place for uh, for thinking about alley cropping. Again, the the last place we maybe need to worry about it is beautiful flat prime land, unless you want to do it there, which is great. Um, um, or I look at um, some of the work that's happening in North Korea, which is a climate um, almost Scandinavian, really in terms of um, uh, uh, cold. Um, and um, their people are farming on very steep, very steep hillsides, growing corn on very steep hillsides with terrible erosion because there's a real food security situation. Um, and uh, that's a place where um, contour rows of shrubs have proven very effective. Uh, they especially like aronia, which is one of our native shrub crops from here. Um, but they're trying all kinds of different things. Um, so that would be, you know, the most steep and most degraded kind of land would be the first priority area to perennialize as well as possible. Um, and until we have perennial corn, which is going to be a long time, <laughs> 30 or 40 years, if we're lucky, um, we need the best ways to grow corn where, where people want corn and they want corn. That's what they want. So we sort of, in a way, you know, in the world of food sovereignty, they say um, that people have the right to culturally appropriate food. So I think rather than try to get everyone to eat breadfruit and chestnuts, even though everyone should eat more breadfruit and chestnuts, um, you know, we try and get them to grow what they like as much as possible. And then the maybe their processed foods are made out of chestnut and breadfruit and, and so on, right? Um, pasta might be made out of those things or more of those things might be mixed in. And it's possible to add a lot of these things to, um, to, uh, to breads and, and pasta and things like that without interfering with the flavor. But 100% chestnut does not make good bread at all. But 10% is very nice. 20% is very nice. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not envisioning 100% perennial anywhere in the world. Probably on an, maybe on an individual farm, but not in any individual valley or mountainside or anything. I think we just want to go as far as we can. We want to push as far as we can. Sure, and uh, because it seems you have quite a overview and you've been doing research and interviews, um, could you give us a few examples of you know the main motives for uh, farmers turning to agroforestry, uh, erosion control definitely seems to be the one coming back in the examples you're quoting. Are there any other kind of strong motives? Sure. I mean, um, uh, uh, diversification is big, just more crops, especially for, um, some of the more direct market oriented farms that are maybe already doing vegetables and want to be able to add small fruits and tree fruits. It's kind of a very natural thing for them to add. Um, uh, in, in a lot of cases, I'm seeing it, uh, 
that people really, farmers really care about soil health. And they can see that uh, perennials have a very powerful uh, ability to improve soil health. So what is that? Uh, uh, how can, then they ask the question, how can I incorporate perennials into my existing operation? And I just need to find one that fits into my existing markets. Um, so that I think is pretty big. And also uh, in some cases we're seeing water quality where cities are finding that their, their drinking water is contaminated with fertilizer um, and uh, they look all up the watershed to say, what can we do to improve water quality from farms to reduce runoff and to reduce uh, nutrient leaching from farms all the way up to the very end of the tiny stream that our river comes from. Um, and that's, uh, that is definitely um, supporting some of these kinds of practices being implemented as well. So um, I think that's, uh, uh, there's a whole range of things, but those are the ones that I'm mostly, mostly seeing. I don't interact with as many farmers as some of the other people I work with, but I hear stories from them anyway. Hmm. And in terms of the limiting factors, uh, do you think today, What's kind of holding back um, intercropping? On what level is it? Is it cultural? Is it linked to commercializing these additional crops? Is it even technical in terms of the knowledge uh, and developing these innovative ways of farming? I, I know that some of it is just farmers need to go see it on another farm somewhere. They need to see what it looks like and they need to ask questions of another farmer. Um, and to some degree, we still don't have enough farms for people to be able to do that here in the United States, at least, right? I, I would love to raise some money to send a bunch of U.S. farmers to Montpellier to go and see see what this looks like or send them to Colombia or send them to China to go and see what these things look like. Because um, I think that's really important to to see how a farmer does does it and to ask them those questions is so important. Um, and I think to some degree, there's still some questions about which trees and which crops and what spacing and what management system. There are some sort of technical research kind of questions there to be answered for sure. Um, but I have found here, for example, with our um, uh, uh, Department of, of Agriculture, does provide payment for environmental services for alley cropping, for example, but almost no states have decided to use that option. And almost no one in that agency actually even knows that that's a practice or how to use it or how to implement it. So um, I think it's still very far away from what people think is agriculture in, in sort of a, as a cultural barrier, I think. You're not supposed to plant trees in your fields. You're supposed to get rid of all the trees out of your fields. And I think that's still pretty, people think it means that you'll have less, that you'll have less yields, that you'll have less profit. Um, uh, and then there's all the question of learning a whole new kind of, product, how to care for it, how do you do pest control on your trees, how to market your wood or your fruit or your nuts or whatever it is. 
um, that's asking a lot of a farmer to to do that. And I think we're still mostly seeing the farmers who are really driven to innovate are the ones who are doing it. It's not the it's not the people who are only adopting cover crops now after people have been, you know, 30 years after the push for cover crops started. It's the people who would have been adopting cover crops 30 years ago who are now adopting alley cropping without assistance, mostly from their governments, without markets, without consumer interest in their product, particularly. Uh, and I'm very... Um, very impressed by, and I have a lot of respect for those farmers. And we are seeing, uh, at least here um, in the U.S. and Canada, a real, a, a very noticeable movement of farmers picking up this practice, which you would didn't even see 10 years ago. So there is something happening. There is a movement building, which really wasn't, I didn't see 10 years ago. So that's very exciting. And I do think that carbon and soil health are big motivators for that. Um, um, I think there's there's still a, a, a lot to be done because it seems that it's a lot to ask from a farmer who's, you know, working 70 hours a week, who's also financially stressed to have that extra yeah. will to complexify even more his operation, you know, because uh, mm -hmm. when you talk with farmers, if they can already make it work with the current, um, well, I'm making a generalization, but let's say based on some conversations, uh, I think, you know, a lot of people would be happy if they can just make it work with their current system and maybe optimize that and yeah. innovate through that. And I think that applies to regenerative farmers as well, where, you know, if you're, um, if you're a broad acre uh, farmer, you might be very interested in testing out a lot of in innovative things with uh, cover crops If you're a mm -hmm. livestock um, farmer, you might just be excited about uh, getting into uh, intensive rotational grazing. But then adding yeah. trees at this moment where there's so much innovation to be done in each branch is is really, uh, yeah, you need, it's a lot. Um, yeah, it's a lot. I, I sort of think that trees in the field, like alley cropping and silvopasture, are more likely to come in this second wave 10 to 15 years from now. Not that we don't have very innovative farmers doing it and not that we shouldn't be doing everything we can to support that. But I think for most farmers right now, it's still cover crops and trees around the edge of the field is probably the right next step for most of those people. And once you're doing that, or once you are doing some innovative grazing, and you figure that out, maybe trees are the next step after that. I'm not sure that it's the first step for a conventional farmer. Um, it's, it's asking a lot. It's asking a lot. And without payment for environmental services or whatever, without a sort of supportive environment in the various ways that that looks, I don't see a lot of people doing that yet. I don't see a lot of conventional farmers doing that. Um, um, And they shouldn't. It would be unwise for them to do that, I think. But we, but when they can see a farm like that near them and talk to that farmer and hear what they're doing and see that it's working, when they can get actual help from their government and university to help them learn how to make this work, when they can see that it makes good sense for them to do that, when they can get a good loan or some other way to help them with the financing of it, that's when when all those pieces are in place that's when i think it could really take off um 
One one last question on um, alley cropping, although we could be going on for a long time. Um, uh, because you have a bit of this overview, you know, two of the op- two of the main options uh, people have uh, and that we see uh, for planting uh, perennial crops and intercropping systems are either going to uh, nut trees or timber. Uh, do you have some general points of comparison? Of course, bearing in mind that this will depend on you know local context and can vary. But are there some trends that you were able to to take out and on these two options? It's interesting reading how much uh, how important timber is in European alley cropping. Uh, and I think the first wave of alley cropping here in the United States was was looking a lot at timber as well. But almost all the new producers we're talking to here uh, want fruit and nut trees and not timber trees. They don't want to wait 60 years to get their investment back. Um which I certainly understand why someone would be concerned about that. Um, the advantage with nuts uh, is that they start to bring in money much, much sooner. And they provide it every year or every other year for for many decades, which is certainly, in terms of the cash flow, much more desirable than waiting for, for timber. Um, um, the value of timber can be extremely high. And if you have the kind of patience to be able to wait and do that and have the right markets and can, you know, do what you need to do in order to, to get a high price for it. Um, it seems like a very, very desirable, um, um, market. And of course the carbon benefits are great if that timber is not maybe so much for pulp wood or biomass energy, but if it's, is going into buildings or whatever, that's a beautiful way to, to hold that carbon. Um, and there aren't that many cases where trees are good for both nuts and timber. It's very unfortunate. It really seems like uh, walnuts can really be good for both black walnuts and European walnuts. Um, uh, but chestnuts, at least the chestnuts we can grow here, don't have a good tree form, you know, don't have a good straight form. Um, uh, almonds aren't, our almonds would be more like a fruit wood, I guess. Hazelnuts would be no no help in that department either. Maybe some of the Turkish types that grow as a tree form, you know. Um, that uh, what is that? Coralus calerna, the Turkish tree hazel. Um, but uh, you you mostly you have sort of have to pecan is not terribly good wood. Um, so you kind of have to choose one or the other, mostly with some exceptions like the walnuts and and then the fruit woods as well. But even then, you're looking at a different pruning style than the than a fruit tree is normally grown with. You're looking at a, a single leader straight trunk with a high pruning. Um, which is a, a, a different uh, management system than fruit growers are, are usually used to. So um, it's uh, that's a challenge uh, for sure. We have been looking at the what are the um, timber trees that provide a return in a shorter period of time. You know, you could do pulpwood with hybrid poplar in a very short period, but the value is very low. Um, um, some people here are doing, um, I think you all say false acacia, right? For Robinia, mm-hmm. um, or Robinier, maybe you say, um, yeah. that is, uh, people will grow it here on a short rotation for fence posts. So 
in a relatively short time, you have some money turning around and you get some nitrogen fixation in the, in the meantime. Um, uh, and we have an alder species, Alnus rubra in the West here, which is very fast growing um, and pretty good quality hardwood. Um, otherwise, we're really looking at that 50 or 60 years or 100 or 120 years, which um, uh, in the current economic situation is hard to get farmers excited about. I do think a world in which there's an incentive to plant a tree that will grow for 120 years would be a wonderful world, but I don't mostly see that being um, 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 that workable for most farmers at, at this point compared to the nuts or, or, or the fruits. Um, I think uh, one, one big area of uncertainty um, in intercropping, but I mean, in any project to shift to perennial crops is the huge uncertainty linked to climate change. I'll give a very practical example. I'm in a region in Ardèche. Uh, I'm on the altitude plateaus and I'm going to get into livestock farming. Uh, but there's a potential here for taking over a lot of chestnuts, old chestnut plantations. Uh, and it's uh, one of the key uh, productions of Ardèche is chestnuts. The issue is uh, with climate change, increasing amounts of droughts and the diseases that go with it. And I made the calculation thinking it's extremely risky for me to get into that business where the old trees aren't necessarily adapted. If I'm planting new trees in, I have to wait 10 to 15 years for a decent production. What will, what will the climate look like in 10, 15 years? I'm not yeah. even that sure. Um, so I guess my question is, in, in, in this world of uncertainty, what place and what strategies for perennial crops? You want to get the most detailed uh, climate projections for your region that you can. So we have the IPCC provides this nice kind of general global tool, uh, which has some regional specificity. Um, and it does look at things like um, uh, how many cold nights are you going to lose, which is very important for certain fruits and nuts. Um, uh, and so on, um, the heat days and precipitation and the length of dry periods and all these things, amount of snowfall that changes terrain. Um, it's really important to look if you're thinking about a crop that's going to live 40 or 50 or 100 or 200 years. <laughs> uh, uh, can it live there now? And can it live in all the foreseeable futures? Um, so I think that sort of makes us look a little more to crops that have a, um, a broad amplitude of climates that are suitable to rather than a very narrow range. Um, and also for those of us in the Northern hemisphere, probably to look to things from farther South or, uh, lower in elevation than where we are now, um, uh, or at least where we're not on the extreme southern end of their range. You know, um, if it also ex extends quite a bit to the south or, or lower in elevation than you, then you're probably okay uh, in terms of cold and heat. But then there's the, the precipitation questions. And it may be that um, uh, places that do not require irrigation now will require them. Um, looking at projections for uh, Eastern Europe, for example, um, in a, a four degrees of warming world, the Sahara Desert moves up into Hungary. So um, that would be a very extreme change to Hungarian agriculture. <laughs> very, very extreme. Um, 
Uh, and actually a lot of the Mediterranean region sort of goes Sahara in those, in those scenarios. So um, thinking about uh, uh, irrigation, if you want to keep growing the same crops would be the very least you would want to do um, uh, in that kind of a scenario and thinking about really changing crops altogether. The question is, what can you plant now that will still work? Great. Maybe you can grow olives in 80 years, but you can't grow olives now. Don't plant olives yet, but, but maybe pomegranates are a good mix, right? Maybe they are suitable now and into the future. So it's just another layer to add is not only what grows where I live, but what what grows in these three different possible futures here. It makes it harder. Um, and certain crops like um, mulberries and and uh, like our, our native black walnut here that have a very wide range of, of climates that they can handle are may be a, a wiser investment, I think, um, than very delicate things that are very particular about, um, about uh, where and how they grow. So Eric, where can people find out about your work uh, and every, all the projects you have been involved in? Great. Well, I, I have a couple of blogs going uh, at um, Perennial Solutions and Paradise Lot and uh, uh, and uh, my carbon farming site. But the current place is I have a Patreon campaign, patreon.com slash Eric Tonsmeyer, um, where I'm um, uh, posting all kinds of things about what I'm working on. And for those who, who subscribe there, I post uh, excerpts and things that early versions of things that they can take a look at and things like that. Well, thank you very much. And uh, until next time then. Yes, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening and uh, making it till the end. As usual, all the relevant links are uh, under the episode. And really feel free to reach out to us through our social media or our website to let us know if you have any questions or a guest that you would like to suggest. 